Well, we're coming this morning to the final in my series on Luke 7, and we're looking at verses 36 through to the end of the chapter. So far in Luke, we've looked at two encounters that Jesus had with people. First, a centurion who exhibited great faith. And then on Friday, with a widow whose dead son Jesus raised. And the second encounter, we focused on hope, the hope we have because of Christ. And this morning, we're looking at that third encounter at the end of Luke. Uh, and this focus will be on love. And the question today is a very simple one. What causes a person, a Christian person, to love God? What causes a Christian person to love God? What is the wellspring of this love? What causes it? And this section really hones in on that question. So if you read with me, I'm going to be reading from verse 36 to the end. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not pour oil, put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. In the section just before this, uh, before verse 36, Jesus is replying to the followers of John the Baptist. Who said that the, and he said that the critics of John had come saying that John, who came neither eating or drinking, he had a demon. Whereas my critics, said Jesus, when they saw me eating and drinking, said he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. I love it that sometimes in an argument with someone you can't win because they are logically inconsistent, and that's what's happening here. But the critics were partly right. They are wrong in claiming he was a glutton and a drunkard, but they are right in seeing him as a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And the situation is set out in this passage in that context. 
A Pharisee invites Jesus to have a meal with him. He accepts and goes to the Pharisee's house. Nothing particularly surprising about this, even though Pharisees are not big fans of Jesus. It's the sort of thing Jesus would do, engage with his critics. The Pharisee we learn later is called Simon. It may be that this is the Pharisee Simon the leper that we meet in both Matthew and Mark's Gospels. We just don't know. But the story changes because a woman, a known sinner, learning that Jesus is at the Pharisee's house, takes herself there. Apparently, and here I am informed by others who know more than me, it wasn't uncommon for people who were not invited to a meal like this where there was a teacher present to attend and to sit around outside and listen to the conversation. They were not participants, they were onlookers. And this woman comes to the Pharisee's house. Most commentators think she was a prostitute. Whether that's the case is not clear. But the description of her as a sinner indicates that her moral failing was well known, probably sexual. But what is, she was marked. As Jesus notes later, her sins were many. What the woman does is startling. She moves from being an onlooker to a participant in the action. She comes behind Jesus, uh, crying, wetting his feet with her tears, and then using her hair as a towel, wipes his feet and kisses them. And then she takes perfume, which he had brought with her, and pours this perfume on his feet, anointing them with probably a costly ointment. The woman says nothing in the narrative, but her actions produce a great deal of discussion. For the action of the woman shocks the host. And he begins to think to himself that Jesus could not possibly be a prophet. That's the category he's using to consider Jesus. For he reasons that a prophet would not allow such a woman to come into contact with him and do the things that she does. I love the little ironical interplay here. Because the Pharisee thinks Jesus can't be a prophet because he doesn't see what this woman is, but Jesus does know. And moreover, he knows what the Pharisee is thinking. And so he responds with a parable. Two debtors, one with a small debt and one with a huge debt. The creditor discovers that neither of them can repay the debt, and yet he generously, with utmost generosity, forgives both of them their debts. And then Jesus turns to the Pharisee and says, of the two debtors, who would love the creditor more? The Pharisee's answer is reluctant, but astute, the one who is forgiven more. And Jesus responds, that's the case. And then Jesus begins to apply the parable to the situation therein. Do you see this woman? Well, what did Simon see? Well, the narrative makes it very clear that he saw a sinful woman. Jesus saw her as a sinner too, but he sees more than that. He sees someone in need of grace and forgiveness. And he goes on to compare her attitude to that of Simon, his host. For the significant point to be made here, Simon had invited Jesus to his home, but he had not treated him as an honoured guest. It would have been expected ordinarily, but not necessarily, that the host would have provided water for which the guest would wash his feet, but Jesus had not received this courtesy. But this woman had washed his feet with her tears. Similarly, in place of the kiss of welcome, that was customary, Jesus did not receive anything from Simon, but this woman kissed his feet. And while Simon had not anointed Jesus' head with oil, this woman had anointed Jesus' feet with the, perfect, with the perfume that she brought. And this raises the question in this passage, why is she doing this? 
and verse 47 goes to the cause of her behaviour. Therefore I tell you, says Jesus, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Now the causation in this verse is important to note. Jesus tells Simon that the woman's many sins have been forgiven. It's not that Jesus overlooks her sins, but he has forgiven them. Perhaps it seems to me probable this is not the first encounter of Jesus with this woman, but whether that's the case is secondary at this point. He is not saying that the woman's actions have earned forgiveness, for that would be at odds with the gospel. He is saying that her love, demonstrated in this tangible way, is evidence of the reality that her, as she's already been forgiven, her great love towards Jesus is an outworking of that forgiveness. So what causes us to love God? Does it spring from, a, from gratitude that our sins have been forgiven and that we are no longer enemies of God but now counted amongst his friends, even better, brothers and sisters with him before our Heavenly Father? You see, the greater our sense that God has dealt with us in mercy, the greater love we will have with, for him in return. The deeper we understand he has dealt with us out of mercy in the midst of our disobedience, the greater will be our response of love. That's what verse 47 is saying. And 1 John picks this up when the Apostle says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And John then goes on to say that since God loved us, but also to love one another, first God loves us, we respond to that love by loving God and then loving others. And Andrew has alluded to that already in our time together this morning, the two great commandments. You see, in this situation in Luke 7, the Pharisee, if he was asked, would claim to know about God and live a life to ple- he was living a life to please him. But look at the way he treats this woman. He treats her very differently to Jesus. He judges her and he writes her off. But look how Jesus deals with her. He doesn't write her off. He recognises what she is, what her need is, and he meets that need. The second part of verse 47 has a rider, a sting in the tail, which is, I think is particularly directed at Simon, but there is a word for us here as well. Whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. In the context of this situation, Jesus is saying to the Pharisee, your love may not be great, because you have not appreciated the extent of forgiveness that God has made available to you. In the situation, the Pharisee judged the woman as a sinner and that was it. Is Jesus implying that worse, the Pharisee only sees himself as a little sinner? He definitely sees himself as superior to her morally and thus spiritually and therein lies the problem. The Pharisee is judgmental and censorious whereas the woman is thankful for the forgiveness she has received. And she expresses this in love towards Jesus. What a contrast between the two characters. And Jesus will again use a comparison between a Pharisee and a known sinner later in Luke's Gospel to drive home the point of how one is right with God. 
In verse 48, Jesus tells the woman that her sins are forgiven. It's very public. And it produces a discussion among the guests. Only God can forgive sins. Who is this? They ask. We even forgive sins. Now the answer is clear to us. I'm not going to go into that point. But you notice Jesus ignores them. His focus is on this woman. His concern is for her. And so he says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. These final couple of verses in the section are incredibly significant because they reiterate an important sequence in God's economy of salvation. First, an offer of forgiveness, followed in the affirmative by the response of faith by the repentant sinner, and then faith expressed by love by the forgiven one towards the one who has forgiven. It is the fundamental cycle of the relationship between God and every Christian person. I think of the three encounters, this is my favourite one. It's a wonderful incident to meditate upon. Look at the woman. She's a great sinner and she knows it. Everyone knows it. But in meeting Jesus, the one who can forgive her sin, her sins are forgiven, not because she deserved it, but because he is merciful gracious and loving. And look at how she responds. She is so grateful to him for this undeserved favour. And what we see in this is, I think, is a model for us to emulate. Not her sin, but her response. Her gratitude to him. Her single-mindedness in serving him. Her boldness going to serve him no matter what people there thought. And a humility that just leaps out at you. She knows who he is and she wants to serve him because of that. A couple of things in conclusion I want to say. The first is not as important as the final point, but it is worth saying. There is implicit warning here about writing people off who do not meet what we think is the moral standard they should meet. There are times we can and I can be like that Pharisee. Yet look at the incident. The woman represents the hope that sinners, even the most notorious ones, can be forgiven, reconciled to God through the saving work of of Christ. The gospel is an invitation to all, yes, even the most notorious and obnoxious sinners. We need to remember that. We are not God. His word is available to all. But secondly and more importantly, for us who are, who are teachers and pastors of God's word, we need to keep taking people back to the cross, back to Jesus. In doing this, we speak to ourselves first. When we say, like Paul, we preach Christ crucified, we're reminding ourselves and others of the love of God for sinners. For at the cross we see our wickedness and our sin but wonderfully we see God's forgiveness to sinners and the extent of God's love for us. John Stott, uh, when he wrote about the cross, said the cross is like a blazing fire at which the flame of our love is kindled. We have to get near enough to it for the sparks to fall upon us. It's a wonderful image. Fire is beautiful, 
well, unless it's an Australian bushfire, but fire is beautiful, looked at from a distance, but it doesn't warm us from a distance. You don't feel its heat. And what Stott is saying is you don't just begin with the cross, you stay at the cross to receive its ongoing warmth, to fire up our love. We do so by being taught about the cross, being reminded about the cross, reflecting upon the cross, meditating upon the cross, singing about the cross, praying about the cross. We did it this morning in our confession. We do it when we give thanks for Christ's work. And that's why Paul says we preach Christ crucified. Why should we love God? Well, when I was younger, I was told because God told us to. That it was right to do so. It seemed to me at the time, that doesn't sound much of a reason at all. Is it not rather that we love God because of what he has done for us, because he has set his love upon us and saved us? And the Apostle John reminds us that we love because he first loved us. God's wonderful, gracious, saving love leads us to love him. And that's what this sinful woman at the end of Luke 7 knew. And I thought about the ancient hymn, or the old hymn I was going to leave you this morning. And I thought, it's got to be when I survey the wondrous cross. We normally only sing four verses. There's actually a fifth verse, which is actually verse four. And it gets left out. And there are a couple of variations on verse four. And I pick the variation that I like. So when we sing this sometime, we're going to sing five verses and we're going to sing my verse four. I didn't write it. It's one of the ancient variations or older variations. I'm just going to pick it up from verse three and you'll hear verse four. See, from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? Verse four. Inscribed upon the cross we see in crimson letters, God is love. The lamb who died upon the tree brings love and mercy from above. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far, present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all, and my love. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we do thank you for this encounter between Jesus, the Pharisee, and this sinful woman. And we thank you that what we see there is your love for the unlovely. We thank you that in seeing her, we see someone whose many sins are forgiven, that Jesus offers to her mercy and forgiveness. And we see there ourselves, for we too are sinners. Our sins may not be as apparent as hers, but we know in the heart of our hearts how sinful we are. And yet, while we are still sinners, the Lord Jesus died for us. Thank you for that love. Help us to respond in love and help that love to so be evident in our lives that when people look at us, they say, why do these people love so? And we can point them to Jesus. Amen.